0: Chapter 2 of The History of Genghis Khan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The History of Genghis Khan by Jacob Abbott. Chapter 2 The Mongols. Mongols, Origin of the Name. Three thousand years is a period of time long enough to produce great changes, and in the course of that time a great many different nations and congeries of nations were formed in the regions of Central Asia. The term Tartars has been employed generically to denote almost the whole race. The Mongols are a portion of this people, who are said to derive their name from Mongol Khan, one of their earliest and most powerful chieftains. The descendants of this Khan called themselves by his name, just as the descendants of the twelve sons of Jacob called themselves Israelites, or children of Israel, from the name Israel, which was one of the designations of the great patriarch from whose twelve sons the twelve tribes of the Jews descended. The country inhabited by the Mongols was called Mongolia, a Mongol family to obtain a clear conception of a single mongol family you must imagine first a rather small short thick-set man with long black hair a flat face and a dark olive complexion his wife if her face were not so flat and her nose so broad would be quite a brilliant little beauty her eyes are so black and sparkling The children have much the appearance of young Indians, as they run shouting among the cattle on the hillsides, or, if young, playing half-naked about the door of the hut, their long black hair streaming in the wind. THEIR OCCUPATIONS Like all the rest of the inhabitants of Central Asia, these people depended almost entirely, for their subsistence, on the products of their flocks and herds. Of course their great occupation consisted in watching their animals while feeding by day and in putting them in places of security by night in taking care of and rearing the young in making butter and cheese from the milk and clothing from the skins in driving the cattle to and fro in search of pasturage and finally in making war on the people of other tribes to settle disputes arising out of conflicting claims to territory or To replenish their stock of sheep and oxen by seizing and driving off the flocks of their neighbors animals of the mongols the animals which the mongols most prized were camels oxen and cows sheep goats and horses they were very proud of their horses and they rode them with great courage and spirit they always went mounted in going to war their arms were bows and arrows pikes or spears, and a sort of sword or sabre, which was manufactured in some of the towns toward the west, and supplied to them in the course of trade by great traveling caravans. THEIR TOWNS AND VILLAGES. Although the mass of the people lived in the open country with their flocks and herds, there were, notwithstanding, a great many towns and villages, though such centers of population were much fewer and less important among them than they are in countries, the inhabitants of which live by tilling the ground. Some of these towns were the residences of the Khans and the heads of tribes. Others were places of manufacture or centers of commerce, and many of them were fortified with embankments of earth or walls of stone. The habitations of the common people even those built in the towns were rude huts made so as to be easily taken down and removed the tents were made by means of poles set in a circle in the ground and brought nearly together at the top so as to form a frame similar to that of an indian wigwam a hoop was placed near the top of these poles so as to preserve a round opening there for the smoke to go out The frame was then covered with sheets of a sort of thick gray felt, so placed as to leave the opening, within the hoop, free. The felt, too, was arranged below in such a manner that the corner of one of the sheets could be raised and let down again to form a sort of door. The edges of the sheets in other places were fastened together very carefully, especially in winter, to keep out the cold air. Within the tent on the ground in the center the family built their fire which was made of sticks leaves grass and dried droppings of all sorts gathered from the ground for the country produced scarcely any wood countries roamed over by herds of animals that gain their living by pasturing on the grass and herbage are almost always destitute of trees trees in such a case have no opportunity to grow bad fuel comfortless homes The tents of the Mongols thus made were, of course, very comfortless homes. They could not be kept warm. There was so much cold air coming continually in through the crevices, notwithstanding all the people's contrivances to make them tight. The smoke, too, did not all escape through the hoop-hole above. Much of it remained in the tent and mingled with the atmosphere. This evil was aggravated by the kind of fuel which they used, which was of such a nature that it made only a sort of smoldering fire instead of burning like good dry wood with a bright and clear flame the discomforts of these huts and tents were increased by the custom which prevailed among the people of allowing the animals to come into them especially those that were young and feeble and to live there with the family movable houses built at last the painting in process of time as the people increased in riches and in mechanical skill some of the more wealthy chieftains began to build houses so large and so handsome that they could not be conveniently taken down to be removed and then they contrived a way of mounting them upon trucks placed at the four corners and moving them bodily in this way across the plains as a table is moved across a floor upon its casters it was necessary of course that the houses should be made very light in order to be managed in this way they were in fact still tents rather than houses being made of the same materials only they were put together in a more substantial and ornamental manner the frame was made of very light poles though these poles were fitted together in permanent joinings the covering was like that of the tents made of felt but the sheets were joined together by close and strong seams and the whole was coated with a species of paint which not only closed all the pores and interstices and made the structure very tight but also served to ornament it for they were accustomed in painting these houses to adorn the covering with pictures of birds beasts and trees representing in such a manner as doubtless in their eyes produced a very beautiful effect account of a large movable house these movable houses were sometimes very large a certain traveller who visited the country not far from the time of genghis khan says that he saw one of these structures in motion which was thirty feet in diameter it was drawn by twenty-two oxen it was so large that it extended five feet on each side beyond the wheels the oxen in drawing it were not attached as with us to the center of the forward axle-tree, but to the ends of the axle-trees, which projected beyond the wheels on each side. There were eleven oxen on each side, drawing upon the axle-trees. There were, of course, many drivers. The one who was chief in command stood in the door of the tent or house, which looked forward, and there, with many loud shouts and flourishing gesticulations, issued his orders to the oxen and to the other men the traveling chests the household goods of this traveling chieftain were packed in chests made for the purpose the house itself of course in order to be made as light as possible having been emptied of all its contents these chests were large and were made of wicker or basket-work covered like the house with felt the covers were made of a rounded form so as to throw off the rain and the felt was painted over with a certain composition which made it impervious to the water these chests were not intended to be unpacked at the end of the journey but to remain as they were as permanent storehouses of utensils clothing and provisions they were placed in rows each on its own cart near the tent where they could be resorted to conveniently from time to time by the servants and attendants as occasion might require The tent placed in the center, with these great chests on their carts near it, formed, as it were, a house with one great room standing by itself, and all the little rooms and closets arranged in rows by the side of it. Necessity of such an arrangement. Some such arrangement as this is obviously necessary in case of a great deal of furniture or baggage belonging to a man who lives in a tent and who desires to be at liberty to remove his whole establishment from place to place at short notice for a tent from the very principle of its construction is incapable of being divided into rooms or of accommodating extensive stores of furniture or goods of course a special contrivance is required for the accommodation of this species of property this was especially the case with the mongols among whom there were many rich and great men, who often accumulated a large amount of movable property. There was one rich Mongol, it was said, who had two hundred such chest-carts, which were arranged in two rows, around and behind his tent, so that his establishment, when he was encamped, looked like quite a little village. Houses in the Towns The style of building adopted among the mongols for tents and movable houses seemed to set the fashion for all their houses even for those that were built in the towns and were meant to stand permanently where they were first set up these permanent houses were little better than tents they consisted each of one single room without any subdivisions whatever they were made round too like the tents only the top instead of running up to a point was rounded like a dome there were no floors above that formed on the ground and no windows roads over the plains such was the general character of the dwellings of the mongols in the days of genghis khan they took their character evidently from the wandering and pastoral life that the people led one would have thought that very excellent roads would have been necessary to have enabled them to draw the ponderous carts containing their dwellings and household goods. But this was less necessary than might have been supposed on account of the nature of the country, which consisted chiefly of immense grassy plains and smooth river-valleys, over which in many places wheels would travel tolerably well in any direction without much making of roadway. Then again, in all such countries, the people who journeyed from place to place, and the herds of cattle that moved to and fro, naturally fall into the same lines of travel, and thus in time wear great trails, as cows make paths, in a pasture. These, with a little artificial improvement at certain points, make very good summer roads, and in the winter it is not necessary to use them at all. Tribes and Families The Mongols, like the ancient Jews, were divided into tribes, and these were subdivided into families, a family meaning in this connection not one household, but a large congeries of households, including all those that were of known relationship to each other. These groups of relatives had each its head, and the tribe to which they pertained had also its general head. There were, it is said, three sets of these tribes forming three grand divisions of the Mongol people, each of which was ruled by its own Khan, and then, to complete the system, there was the Grand Khan, who ruled over all. Influence of Diversity of Pursuits A constitution of society like this almost always prevails in pastoral countries, and we shall see, on a little reflection, that it is natural that it should do so. In a country like ours, Where the pursuits of men are so infinitely diversified, the descendants of different families become mingled together in the most promiscuous manner. The son of a farmer in one state goes off, as soon as he is of age, to some other state, to find a place among merchants or manufacturers, because he wishes to be a merchant or a manufacturer himself while his father supplies his place on the farm perhaps by hiring a man who likes farming and has come hundreds of miles in search of work thus the descendants of one american grandfather and grandmother will be found after a lapse of a few years scattered in every direction all over the land and indeed sometimes all over the world it is the diversity of pursuits which prevails in such a country as ours TAKEN IN CONNECTION WITH THE DIVERSITY OF CAPACITY AND OF TASTE IN DIFFERENT INDIVIDUALS THAT PRODUCES THIS DISPERSION. TRIBES AND CLANS. AMONG A PEOPLE DEVOTED wholly TO PASTORAL PURSUITS, ALL THIS IS DIFFERENT. THE YOUNG MEN, AS THEY GROW UP, CAN HAVE GENERALLY NO INDUCEMENT TO LEAVE THEIR HOMES. THEY CONTINUE TO LIVE WITH THEIR PARENTS AND RELATIVES sharing the care of the flocks and herds and making common cause with them in everything that is of common interest it is thus that those great family groups are formed which exist in all pastoral countries under the name of tribes or clans and form the constituent elements of the whole social and political organization of the people mode of making war horsemen the bow and arrow in case of general war each tribe of the mongols furnished of course a certain quota of armed men in proportion to its numbers and strength these men always went to war as has already been said on horseback and the spectacle which these troops presented in galloping in squadrons over the plains was sometimes very imposing the shock of the onset when they charged in this way upon the enemy was tremendous They were armed with bows and arrows, and also with sabers. As they approached the enemy, they discharged first a shower of arrows upon him, while they were in the act of advancing at the top of their speed. Then dropping their bows by their side, they would draw their sabers, and be ready, as soon as the horses fell upon the enemy, to cut down all opposed to them, with the most furious and deadly blows if they were repulsed and compelled by a superior force to retreat they would gallop at full speed over the plains turning at the same time in their saddles and shooting at their pursuers with their arrows as coolly and with as correct an aim almost as if they were still While thus retreating, the trooper would guide and control his horse by his voice, and by the pressure of his heels upon his sides, so as to have both his arms free for fighting his pursuers. These arrows were very formidable weapons, it is said. One of the travelers who visited the country in those days says that they could be shot with so much force as to pierce the body of a man entirely through. THE FLYING HORSEMAN nature of the bow and arrow it must be remembered however in respect to all such statements relating to the efficiency of the bow and arrow that the force with which an arrow can be thrown depends not upon any independent action of the bow but altogether upon the strength of the man who draws it the bow in straightening itself for the propulsion of the arrow expends only the force which the man has imparted to it by bending it, so that the real power by which the arrow is propelled is, after all, the muscular strength of the archer. It is true a great deal depends on the qualities of the bow, and also on the skill of the man in using it to make all this muscular strength effective. With a poor bow, or with unskilled management, a great deal of it would be wasted. But with the best possible bow, and with the most consummate skill of the archer, It is the strength of the archer's arm, which throws the arrow, after all. Superiority of Firearms. It is very different in this respect with a bullet thrown by the force of gunpowder from the barrel of a gun. The force in this case is the explosive force of the powder, and the bullet is thrown to the same distance, whether it is a very weak man or a very strong man that pulls the trigger. Sources of Information. Gog and magog but to return to the mongols all the information which we can obtain in respect to the condition of the people before the time of genghis khan comes to us from the reports of travellers who either as merchants or as ambassadors from caliphs or kings made long journeys into these distant regions and have left records more or less complete of their adventures and accounts of what they saw in writings which have been preserved by the learned men of the East. It is very doubtful how far these accounts are to be believed. One of these travelers, a learned man named Salam, who made a journey far into the interior of Asia by order of the Caliph Mohammed Amen Bilah some time before the reign of Genghis Khan, says that, among other objects of research and investigation which occupied his mind, He was directed to ascertain the truth in respect to the two famous nations, Gog and Magog, or, as they are designated in his account, Yagog and Magog. The story that had been told of these two nations by the Arabian writers, and which was extensively believed, was that the people of Yagog were of the ordinary size of men, but those of Magog were only about two feet high. These people had made war Upon the neighboring nations, and had destroyed many cities and towns, but had at last been overpowered and shut up in prison. Salam. Adventures of Salam and His Party Salam, the traveler whom the caliph sent to ascertain whether their accounts were true, traveled at the head of a caravan containing fifty men, and with camels bearing stores and provisions for a year. He was gone a long time. When he came back, He gave an account of his travels and in respect to gog and magog he said that he had found that the accounts which had been heard respecting them were true he travelled on he said from the country of one chieftain to another till he reached the caspian sea and then went on beyond that sea for thirty or forty days more in one place the party came to a tract of low black land which exhaled an odour so offensive that they were obliged to use perfumes all the way to overpower the noxious smells. They were ten days in crossing this fetid territory. After this they went on a month longer through a desert country, and at length came to a fertile land which was covered with the ruins of cities that the people of Gog and Magog had destroyed. In six days more they reached the country of the nation by which the people of Gog and Magog had been conquered. And shut up in prison. Here they found a great many strong castles. There was a large city here too, containing temples and academies of learning, and also the residence of the king, the wonderful mountain, great bolts and bars. The travelers took up their abode in this city for a time, and while they were there, they made an excursion of two days' journey into the country to see the place where the people of Gog and Magog were confined. When they arrived at the place they found a lofty mountain. There was a great opening made in the face of this mountain, two or three hundred feet wide. The opening was protected on each side by enormous buttresses, between which was placed an immense double gate, the buttresses and the gate being all of iron. The buttresses were surmounted with an iron bulwark, and with lofty towers also of iron, which were carried up as high as to the top of the mountain itself. The gates were of the width of the opening cut in the mountain, and were seventy-five feet high, and the valves, lintels, and threshold, and also the bolts, the lock, and the key, were all of proportional size. THE PRISONERS Salem, on arriving at the place, saw all these wonderful structures with his own eyes, and he was told by the people there that it was the custom of the governor of the castles already mentioned to take horse every friday with ten others and coming to the gate to strike the great bolt three times with a ponderous hammer weighing five pounds when there would be heard a murmuring noise within which were the groans of the yagog and magog people confined in the mountain indeed Salem was told that the poor captives often appeared on the battlements above Thus the real existence of this people was, in his opinion, fully proved, and even the story in respect to the diminutive size of the Magogs was substantiated, for Salem was told that once, in a high wind, three of them were blown off from the battlements to the ground, and that, on being measured, they were found but three spans high. TRAVELERS' TALES PROGRESS OF INTELLIGENCE This is a specimen of the tales brought home from remote countries by the most learned and accomplished travelers of those times. In comparing these absurd and ridiculous tales with the reports which are brought back from distant regions in our days by such travelers as Humboldt, Livingstone, and Kane, we shall perceive what an immense progress in intelligence and information the human mind has made since those days. End of chapter two.